to earth, and, and, and both of the meanings of down to earth that are, are this play on words. When we think of someone who we describe as down to earth, we think of them as normal, as practical, as, as genuine. And when we think of the words down to earth, we think of the journey that Jesus made uh, to, to come to, to rescue us. You've heard a sort of bit of background to uh, what we're looking at as we move into Luke chapter 2 today. But what I want to do really uh, today is to look at three journeys that, are made, that, that, that made this a completely down-to-earth arrival. For those of you joining us from home, good to have you participating in this. And I hope that together we'll see God encourage us, challenge us, and remind us uh, of the great wonder of this fantastic story. Going back a little while, do you remember back in Beirut, there was a massive explosion when uh, at the harbor, at the port there, uh, various uh, fertilizer chemicals uh, lit up and destroyed a significant part of the city. And if you were part of the CBC congregation, perhaps online at that stage, you may remember a week or two later that we played a video of a young woman, a Christian woman from Beirut, talking to us about the situation there and how we could pray for healing in that situation. Well, during the second lockdown, Cindy and I were privileged to attend an engagement celebration in Lebanon it was her engagement, and we attended it by Zoom. Well, Trevina, who you see here on the left, and this was at the engagement party, is the daughter of one of Cindy's colleagues in Lebanon. And earlier this year, she got engaged to Emil, uh, and Riyad, her father, explained to us in the West, now that they are engaged, they are as good as married. In other words, an engagement in that culture was far more significant than an engagement in this culture. It was almost like marriage part one, and there was just one more thing to happen. Well, if we fast forward to last month, the the marriage was finalized. That was marriage part two, or wedding part two, if you like. Uh, It was finalized with a wedding. And so the engagement in, in a Lebanese culture was much more like the biblical betrothal. And that's, of course, the situation we enter into at the beginning of the narrative around Jesus' birth. Now, back in biblical times, in in, uh, biblical Palestine, marriage took place at a very young age for the ancient Jews. Uh, One of the rabbis said 18 was an appropriate age for men, uh, and young women, it was often around the age of 13 or 14, once they were uh, physically mature. And so once a future bride had been chosen for a young man, there then followed a one-year period of betrothal, but from the point of the betrothal, they were legally married. Now, during this time of betrothal, the couple lived apart, and there were sort of delicate and, and quite often quite protracted negotiations between the families, especially regarding the dowry, because the, the groom or his, his family w- would pay a dowry to the bride's family in recognition that they were losing someone um, as a working member of their household. And often some of that money for the bride's family would be kept for the bride in case in future years her husband died prematurely. 
Well, after the betrothal was finished and all the agreements had been reached, the wedding could take place. And then at the beginning of the wedding celebration in the evening, it was a sort of five-day celebration, the, the bridegroom, accompanied by his friends, went to fetch his betrothed from her father's house and brought her to his own house. Well, what's the significance here? Well, do you remember that when Joseph discovered that Mary was pregnant, he knew it wasn't him responsible, so he had in mind to divorce her. They weren't married, yet they could still be divorced because they were betrothed. Betrothed was a legal contract. It was marriage part one, you see. And so um, he, uh, the angel uh, Gabriel appeared to him in a dream and told him, no, this is God's child. And we read that when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he didn't consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. So at some point, the, marriage, the wedding took place when he went and took her to his own home. But we're going to look at three journeys today and we haven't reached this stage yet. We're at the stage where they are betrothed but still in separate households. I wonder what your worst journey ever was. I can think of a, a few, but one that particularly sticks to mind was a, a journey that took me some 36 hours to get from the eastern United States to my house. And what had happened was I, I traveled about three and a half hours to get to the airport in Washington, D.C. This was way back in 1979. And we got to the plane, but there was fog in Europe, and so we delayed taking off by two or three hours, thinking that when we arrived over the U.K. that the fog would have cleared. But we arrived over the U.K. and the fog hadn't cleared. In fact, I can remember looking out of the window and just seeing the tops of very tall chimneys above the fog, but that was it. And so it wasn't possible to land, so we, we start, started circling over Portland Bill. That was the only part of the, that was clear. So it got, got quite a few views of, of Portland Bill over the next hour as we circled. Uh, but, but at this stage, we started to run out of fuel, and it's better to land before you run out of fuel rather than after. And the only two airports that were open in Northern Europe, I think, were Paris or Amsterdam and Prestwick. So we got diverted up to Prestwick in Scotland, which is southwest of Glasgow. Now, Prestwick was a small airport. This was before Glasgow Airport was really uh, in action. So Prestwick was, was, had about two flights a day in those days, I think. And when we got there, I counted 18 jumbo jets that I could see from our plane that were on the ground already before us. So it really wasn't geared up for coping for this. So we sat for two hours in the plane before they even let us off. Then we had to go through long queues of you know, immigration and, and so on. But uh, subsequently, standing room only in the lounge, and they brought extra food in to feed us, but it was just long and long and long. Now, many of the airlines took their passengers uh, and put them on trains to get down to London, but British Airways had, um, by this time, Heathrow had opened up, and they put some pilots on a shuttle up to Prestwick, uh, and we got... Oh, to take off, I think it was about 7 in the evening, um, having meant to have landed about 7 in the morning. We took off from Prestwick at 7 in the evening, heading down to Glasgow, sorry, to London. And, uh, and you could tell 
that normally once you finish climbing, they close the engines down a bit and you go to cruising speed. We didn't. The plane was uh, shaking the whole way down. They were, try they were in a hurry. And the reason was, we discovered, that about two-thirds of the way down there, the captain came on the intercom and said, we've heard that the fog is coming in at Heathrow. We're not sure we're going to be able to land. Well, uh, you know, everybody, I, I don't know about praying, uh, I was, but some, some, I don't know everybody was, but um, a few minutes later, it seemed, there was a bit of a thud and the wheels touched down and I think we were the last flight to land that day. I got home, I think, 36 hours later. For some reason, I didn't go to work the next day. Rather a bit weary, I think. The first journey in this story that we're going to be looking at. Oh, by the way, I've discovered some new map software. This is really exciting. <laughs> this is a map nobody's seen before. But uh, it, this is a map of a journey that Jesus might have taken when he started his ministry. But actually, it plots the route that Mary would have taken as well. So I thought, let's use it. Right? So, so Mary, now pregnant in the early stages of her pregnancy, is going to make a journey of between 60 and 80 miles. And she's going to start off up there in Nazareth. And then she's going to follow the typical journey where they cross the Jordan River. And they do that because they didn't want to go through Samaria. Samaritans were in Samaria, and you really didn't want to associate with them. You go down to the bottom, uh, just above the Dead Sea, near Jericho, and then you cross over, and then you climb up uh, toward Jerusalem, normally, if you were a pilgrim. But she was going to the hill country of Judea, and we don't know exactly where, which is why I say the journey could have been 60 to 80 miles. And now, I, I think this, she's just been discovered she's pregnant under the most unexpected of circumstances. She must have told her family, because there's no way a 14, 15-year-old girl would have made that journey alone. So she decides that she wants to speak to her cousin, who also has her own miraculous pregnancy. There is, it's a land that's under Roman occupation. So I suspect that she travelled in convoy. That would have been the normal way, you know, not just one family, but groups of people. Did she join one of the um, pilgrimages, if you like, to Jerusalem for the, uh, one of the, 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 the festivals? It wasn't the Passover, but was there something else happening? I don't know. It's, it, I'm speculating here, but I'm just trying to help us to see the ordinariness of this situation and the challenges that, that she would have been facing. Once you get down to the region of Jericho and you want to go up into the hill country, it's about a 4,000 foot climb from Jericho up to Jerusalem over about 25, 30 miles. So it's, it's pretty steep. Uh, the best of times, um, I know that you know, um, one or two of you here are keen walkers and so on, but um, I'm looking at the front row here, um, but I feel, but, but you know, when you're just pregnant and the you know, you, it's, it's quite a challenge, I would imagine. Not that I've experienced pregnancy, despite anything you might see of me. Right. So it's four to five days of travel, probably about December time, where, where it's less hot and it's occasionally cold. I'll, I'll show you a December image a bit later on. So what I've tried to do is to put together a timeline of where this might have happened. Now, I, my... Theology doesn't depend on this being right, by the way, and I'll talk you through it in a minute. And I may be a year out. We, we, Herod died about four B, in 4 BC, so Jesus was born before that, either in 4 BC, maybe 5 BC. So this, year, this may be a year in advance, but we, if we go back here to, to the fact that Zechariah was in the temple, 
because he was in the uh, priestly group of Abijah, he would have been on duty between um, May the 15th to the 29th in 6 BC. That would have been his thing. And so he, when he gets home, then John the Baptist had conceived. So probably June of 6 BC. Gosh, that screen is blowing about in that wind, isn't it? Uh, and these here, these numbers down here, these are the months before Jesus was born. Now, if you'd like these slides, at the end, I'll give you a link so that you can download a copy. So if you want to write it down or just get your phone camera out and take a picture of the link later on, I'll, I'll let, you, let you do that. So, so it's six months later, when Elizabeth is six months pregnant, that the angel Gabriel appears to Mary. So we're looking at late November or early December of um, 6 BC. Uh, and then... Right after that, Mary visits Zechariah and Elizabeth. And I've tried to make that bar there about three months long because that's how long she was there for. All right, so this is a best guess, as I say, uh, rather than, uh, it's designed to be helpful, uh, not got quite the same reliability as, as scripture itself, my dates here, okay? So let's fast forward to the passage that I've been allocated today, which is Luke chapter 2. And, and, and then we come to uh, a story which is well familiar to us. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Roman censuses were frequent. The official ones, I think, about every 14 years because they wanted to know who there was to pay tax and how much tax could be collected. But there may have been some other local ones as well. And it appears that this one may have been a local one uh, before the one that everybody knows about in, in 6 AD. So we come on to what's happening in this timeline. And we, we know that Mary returns to Nazareth three months pregnant. In other words, just before John the Baptist is born, um, and at that point, presumably, Joseph finds out because it, it, Nazareth was a town of, of four or 500 people. You know, it wasn't going to be something that was hidden for any length of time. And that's when Gabriel appears to Joseph. And so I, I'm going to say, you know, about that time, John the Baptist is born. And I think that probably soon after that, Joseph marries Mary. That's a guess. Right? So I think that, that he takes her into his own home at that stage, or his family's home. And at some point between then and the birth, they make the journey to, to Bethlehem. Now, I know that in our nativity stories, we imagine she's about 11 months pregnant, uh, you know, and donkey traveling to, well, not I know, it's, you know, I know the mass, it's nine months, eight and a half months pregnant on, on a donkey traveling to Bethlehem, right? I know that, but I think they, they could have traveled earlier than that. I mean, after all, you know, the, if the word got around in Nazareth that this girl had become pregnant before they got married and so on and so forth, it might not have been the most easy of social situations. Maybe they left earlier. I don't know. We don't have the detail in the Bible. And so I'm just trying to open up the, the, the tensions and some of the normality in this rather down-to-earth story. 
when um, we don't know whether there was a donkey involved. You know, if, I'm going to ask you women who've had a baby, would you prefer, you know, at say seven months pregnant, to ride a donkey for 70 miles or to, to walk it slowly? Okay, I've heard donkey. Uh, somebody, somebody I'm married to said foot, you see. So, 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 so I'll, I'll, you know, I, I, I think that the donkey may have been an option, but it may not. They may not have been wealthy enough for a donkey. You just don't know, you see. So I don't want to burst all the myths, but it was down-to-earth issues that they were dealing with. Remember, tax rates in those days were 80%. That's what the Romans imposed on people. People couldn't afford much. When they got to Bethlehem, did they stay with relatives until the time of the birth? Possibly. Bethlehem population, maybe about 300. It wasn't as if there were a lot of premier inns there. Right. And the word that is used in Luke, for, that's translated in, is not the word for a inn as in hotel. It's the same word that's used as for a guest room when we come to the Last Supper. And so it's possible that the birth took place in the lower room of a house, which is the room where the animals were kept, or it may have been something separate. There are quite a number of caves in the Bethlehem area where, you can, where the animals would have been kept. And so, so here's a picture of a manger that I took. In Beth, I took this picture back in Bethlehem 11 years ago. Stone manger, very difficult, different from the... You know, typical one we would see in, in, a, in an ordinary uh, scene. So maybe it was that, maybe it was wood. But there was a lot more stone. It's limestone, fairly easy to shape. A lot more stone than wood in that area. So uh, you would expect that it might well have been something like that. And here's something else I saw uh, in Bethlehem uh, 11 years ago. Now you might look, notice the name of the, co- the, the cafe and um, one of its patrons just standing in front of it. But it was shirt sleeves weather. Um, uh, it says Star and Bucks Cafe, by the way. Uh, not Starbucks. Um, that, was, that was shirt sleeve weather in December. So, so we've considered two of the journeys so far. The return journey to visit Elizabeth. So that we're looking at 120 to 160 miles that, that Mary travelled, carrying Jesus. Uh, then the journey to Jerusalem later, in, uh, sorry, to Bethlehem later in her pregnancy. So I want to ask the question: um, down to earth or down to earth? Hyphens make the difference here, don't they? We've considered the ordinariness, the challenges, the very practical everyday issues in the hyphenated version. But the third journey I'd like us to consider is down to earth. In the letter to the Philippians, Paul wrote in chapter 2 of Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This third journey is much more difficult, much harder to draw on a map, 
because it involved the journey that Jesus made from the riches of heaven via the womb of a young woman to the cross. It's the juxtaposition between down to earth and down to earth as we realize what Jesus left behind, his motive for doing so, and how that journey would end. I saw this picture on Twitter this week, and, and, and this is hidden in this image, which looks rather medieval, but it came with the spoiler alert. And I don't know if you can see that. In fact, if I try that, I don't know if that helps at all, but I'm going to zoom in in just a moment. All right. Let's zoom in there. Can you see the crucifix? So this medieval artist had this planted, this sort of spoiler alert. We know where this is heading. So in all the largeness and the glory of this representation of the nativity scene, in the background is hidden that message foretelling the death of this baby whose birth we will celebrate this season. This month, we want to convey a sense of, of the messy, down-to-earth reality of the events leading up to the birth of Jesus. Perhaps to imagine how we would have reacted in those same situations, but in awe of God using ordinary believing people in his great plan for redemption. Could it be that he could possibly use ordinary believing people in West Sussex or even Hampshire to continue the working out of that plan today? And we want to convey the enormity of the step that Jesus took in being born, the measure of the love for us that brought him to earth and of course a reminder that he was born in the shadow of the cross and his journey will continue after his birth until that time when he'd offered himself as many a lamb from Bethlehem had been offered before as a sacrifice for sin a journey that would end not at the cross not even at the resurrection but at his second coming, a second advent, which we live anticipating. I said to you earlier, if you want to grab that timeline or those slides, you're welcome to do so. There's the link. Just type that into your browser and it would work for you. I'll put that up because sometimes people get frustrated at the speed with which I work through those uh, things. So for those of you who are curious, it's there. Let's pray together. Our Father, it's with enormous gratitude and um, humbled before you that we recognize the significance and the uh, amazing journey that the Lord Jesus made. But we also recognize the very down-to-earth challenges that Mary and her family and Joseph faced as they were encountered this intervention in their lives from the living God for the enormous privilege and responsibility they had of being given the baby Jesus to raise from uh, infancy through to manhood. We thank you for their faithfulness. We thank you that they rose to those challenges. And we pray that you would help us to respond in similar 
trust, faith, and rising to the challenges that you provide for us, ordinary believers, as we seek to live out our faith for you. We pray that we might live with a sense of wonder and awe at this incredible intervention that Jesus would give up everything he so richly deserved, all the glories of heaven for us, and that love stretches to reach us when we know that the love is accomplished on the cross but continues to extend to us day by day as we seek to believe and follow you. And Father, I want to pray for anyone here who is just seeing this really for the first time, that Christmas is familiar, but they haven't yet taken that step of of trusting the work of Jesus on the cross. And I pray that today you would help them to grasp how great your love is for them, that there is no barrier that can get in the way of your love reaching them if they would turn to you and acknowledge Jesus as their Lord and King. If they would turn from their rebellion and disbelief to faith and to receive the gift of your spirit. And I pray that that might be true for someone here today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.